Apostle Hope. Let us go ahead and pray. We have some work to do this morning. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, as we have already sang about our need, I stand back and I just thank you and I praise you for being our all-sufficient God. Every one of our needs has been fully anticipated by you, and you are, Lord God, all that we need. If we were to enumerate them, Heavenly Father, they would fill this room. We don't have space, Lord God, to outline or to commit to paper all of our needs. And you know that. Therefore, you are the all-sufficient God. Lord God, we praise you for being the God who desires to communicate. You are the one true and living God who saw fit to not only create mankind, but also call us into fellowship with you. Even after we sinned against you, ran from you, hid from you, O God, you chased us down and sought fellowship. You did not negotiate with us, the terrorist of sin, but you established, O God, in your son Jesus Christ, a way for us to have renewed fellowship. But not just, Lord God, you didn't just broker a deal through your son Jesus Christ. You satisfied our sin you addressed our sin, you addressed every single one of our needs, and you have this ongoing commitment to our transformation through your person, the Holy Spirit. Today, O oh God, we stand before you, thanking you and praising you for the beauty of your church, for the wonder of this hour, how it is that the almighty God of heaven and earth, who cannot be enclosed or captured or housed in temples made with men's hands still desires to have fellowship with us. You still want us to have an immediate and intimate engagement with your presence. You've ordained, O oh God, in your righteousness that that engagement take place through the reading of your word and the illumination of that word through your Holy Spirit through the deployment of gifts that you gave to the body of Christ, and one in particular is that of the pastor-teacher. Would you now, O oh God, take full utilization of the gifts that you've given the local body and allow us to experience exactly what your word says ought to happen each time we encounter your word, that there would be clear doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that we would be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Would you, Lord God, deliver us from a mere recitation of ideas quotes and quips, and would you allow us to experience a demonstration of your Holy Spirit so that, Lord God, when you put a bow on this moment, we know that we have been with you. Would you prick each and every one of our hearts sufficiently for where we are? You know our addresses situationally and spiritually, and would you begin to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ? I pray for the person in this room, oh God, who does not know you as Savior actively seated under the deception of Satan. Pray, O oh God, that you would peel back the blinders from their eyes, that you would pull forward that wayward heart by the conviction and the drawing power of your Holy Spirit, and that you would, Lord God, draw them into a loving relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ, who has died for them. Lord God, who you sovereignly ordained would be in this place today. This we pray in the matchless and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me in them to the book of Psalms. As Pastor Ryan has already mentioned, we are working through a series on prayer, praying through the Psalms. 
and we're going to be looking at Psalm 32, and Psalm 32 is going to shape our understanding of what it means to respond to God. So we've talked uh, about uh, reverencing God, and now we're going to talk about what it means in that next movement to respond to God. So Psalm 32, if you've got your Bibles out or your books or your, your, uh, your pads dialed up or you can look at the screen, Psalm 32 reads as follows. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they will not reach him. You are, hide, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with the bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in talk about the response movement of our prayer life. First and foremost, let's talk about the four R's. So we've said that they are reverence, response, request, and then receive, or readiness, right? Readiness, right? So uh, the four R's are not a formula. They are not a formula. Do not be deceived. By, by putting in the secret code of the four R's that you're getting ready to unlock some magical treasure trove in heaven. The Bible is not a book of spells like it were in the Harry Potter movies where if you say the right things in the right order that some of you are unlocking these magic ideas. Let me tell you something. The four R's are a discipleship tool readily emerging from the, from the pages of scripture. As you've read in Jesus' own teaching of his disciples how to pray, we, 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 what we see here is this movement that is guided by the scriptures. The four R's are a discipleship tool in two ways. Discipling our hearts to pray to the Lord in a way that is effectively integrated with God's word and a discipleship tool for you who are in relationships with those who are not in these pews and may never be for years to come or may choose to go to the churches when they get saved. Because you are actively involved as a part of your life in this local church, you are an intentional disciple maker. Your heart is being discipled by us, and you are actively involved in the adventure of discipling others. And so as you're engaged with people who do not know the Lord, and they begin to move in this life of prayer and want to know more what it's about, the four R's are a tool for you to disciple them, but it also is a tool for you to disciple your own heart. Now, why do our hearts need to be discipled when it comes to this adventure or this great privilege and exercise of prayer? 
The reason that we need that is in the same way that you buy highlight markers and notebooks and, and Bible dictionaries. They are not special formulas or substitutes for the substance of God's word. They are tools that help you take your Bible study deeper. So are the four R's. They are tools that help our hearts effectively integrate God's word into way that we, the way that we pray. Why do I need this integration between God's word and the way that I talk to God? Because the Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes from the word of God and prayer is the ultimate and initial exercise of faith. The Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. They that come to him must first believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And one of the great reflections of our diligence as a believer is our diligence in God's word and our diligence in talking to God. And so to believe that he is is only half the, the conversation. To believe that he is is only half the battle. I don't even know if it's half. But the Bible says it's impossible to please him. Believe that he is. And how do I know that? The word of God must inform me of that truth. And then it says, and to be a diligent seeker. So I want to diligently and consistently talk to God without ceasing. But I want to talk to him well. I want to talk to him right. And it's not as though God is holding me hostage to a certain vocabulary, liturgy, or formula. But if I love someone, I want to speak to them in a way that honors and makes the relationship move with the highest level of fellowship and efficiency. When I read this passage and I think about the four R's and I think about how my heart needs to be discipled to bring the word into the way that I pray, I think about my very first set of golf clubs that I received from a friend. I didn't even know what a great blessing and privilege I had. This man gave me a full set, not a partial set, a full set. And both of us were over six feet tall. He gave me a full set of Callaway clubs. I was so excited about it that I immediately went out to the golf course and began hacking away. There was a driving range just down the street from my job. And every day that I could, three to four days a week, I would go and get the biggest bucket of balls that I possibly could and go there and just hack away and hack away and hack away in absolute excitement, full strength, rearing back as hard as I could and coming forward as hard as I could, watching balls fly and grinning with great delight every time I made contact. Winning is so hard that I actually broke the head off of my big Bertha, which was my, my driver. Those of you who know the game know that that's horrendous and crazy. But in all of my diligence to practice, I had not been discipled in the game. Therefore, my strength was not, my effort was not yielding all that it could. And so, I needed someone to come alongside the effort, to come alongside the joy, to come alongside all that energy that I was applying to help me apply it properly. I need someone to disciple my heart in prayer so I don't believe that spitting in my mic and furrowing my brow and screaming at the Lord, saying it harder, saying it louder, somehow equals more effective prayer. I need someone to help me integrate. I need, I need to be coached. I need to be discipled. And this is what we're hoping to offer with prayer. Discipleship for your own heart so that your prayer life becomes more beautiful and a more graceful utilization of this incredible gift that God has given you with the balance of God's word. So we're saying to him what he said about himself. And at the same time, 
when someone who I'm sitting across the table from at Chili's or Hardee's or O'Charlie's or wherever you disciple people, and they say, hey, I noticed that you pray. I don't feel comfortable. I don't know what to say. Now you've got a tool for discipleship. Do you now see why the series matters? Let's talk a little bit about response. I want us to understand fully what David has done in this text. Thinking about what David has done and thinking about what Ben gave us in this first movement, which is to reverence God, and then now the new movement or the next movement is to respond. Well, what exactly am I responding to? I am responding to the truths that were laid out in this time of reverence. If you look at the words of David in the psalm that we just read, it is obviously him responding to certain truths. In other words, David understands something about God in reverence. And when we understand something about God in reverence, the response is to stand under those truths. And that's what I want to talk about today is if we understand, if I'm worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth, when I understand God in, his, in this act of reverence, I then stand under those truths in response. So let's look at some of the truths that David said, or some of the things that he said about God in response. Blessed is the person whose transgression is forgiven, whose sins are covered, the person that the Lord does not count his sin against him. What is he saying about God? He is responding to these truths. The Lord is righteous, he is forgiving, he is justifying, and he is a sanctifying God. How do we get that? Well, obviously, God is righteous because if God wasn't righteous and did have a standard, why would I need to solicit him for forgiveness? His response is one where he says, Lord, I've looked at you and seen you for who you are. I now see who I am, and I understand that there is a difference. You're not the one who needs to change. I need to change. I'm the one who has transgressed. He understands that God has a standard. He is righteous. He understands that God is a forgiving God. The Lord is not holding him hostage to sin, that if he would come and confess his sin, he would forgive. He understands that God is a justifying God. He uses this term, blessed is the man whom the Lord does not count his iniquity against him. In other words, as God looks at the ledger of human life, he says, somebody's got to pay for that. That is a sin. You are indebted. And he's like, oh, Lord, I'm indebted to who? Oh, I'm indebted to you. So what does the Lord do? He says, if you will confess to me, if you will agree that I'm righteous and that you're sinful, I have a solution for your sin, and I will pay for it through Christ. So your indebtedness is now satisfied by me. I give you the credit of righteousness that comes from my son, which now imputes you and gives you a status of righteousness. It's counted to you as righteousness. It's not righteousness that you earned or achieved. This is part of the confession, but it only occurs when I agree with God on who he is and who I am and what my sin actually is. He is a sanctifying God because not only does he not hold it against us, but then he begins to do an ongoing work. So it isn't that just God says, legally, I'm going to forget about that or economically, we're going to put that aside. He says, there's some ongoing work that I want to do in you. He is a sanctifying God. He's going to search us so that there's no deceit found in us. These are the attributes that God is, that, that, that David is reverentially acknowledging. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, the New Testament kind of makes the picture a little bit clearer. 
John says, this is the message that we have heard from him, talking about God, and we proclaim to you that God is light, reverence, and in him there's no darkness at all, righteousness. And if we say we have fellowship with him, and while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, oh, that's my response. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another and with the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess, if we agree with God on our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we can't agree with God, if we don't agree with God on who he is and where he is and what my sin is, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Have you ever played this game in real life or maybe seen someone else playing it? Two people in general proximity trying to locate one another and they're on the phone. Maybe you're one of them. Hey, I'm here. Where are you? Oh, I'm over here in this open field by the oak tree. Where are you? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm over here by the sliding board in the sandbox. Uh, what are you wearing? I'm wearing a, a pink blouse with the puffy sleeves and the, the, the white lace down the side. Why are you wearing that? Well, Lord, that's why I need to get to you. It's part of what I want to talk to you about. <laughs> what prayer is, is me and God having a conversation where I'm constantly saying, Lord, uh, where are you? And the Lord is saying, I'm right here. I haven't changed my position. Why don't you come a little bit to the left? Why don't you go a little bit to the right? Now, just keep coming, keep coming. Follow the sound of my voice. Just keep coming. And as we respond to God, soon that conversation gets a little bit closer. And it's not me trying to find him. I see him clearly. And when I see him clearly, I put the phone down and I go into a fuller fellowship. I'm just walking toward him. This is what response is in prayer. Lord, where are you? I know you're there based on the truth of Scripture. Help me get close. And the Lord says, I see you. Do you see me? Let's get an agreement on where you are. We're at distance. Let's get an agreement on what you're wearing. And when you get over here, I'm going to talk about how we can put something else on you. And so prayer, prayer is my willingness to kind of cross, not kind of, fully cross the bridge that God has built to facilitate our fellowship. The scriptures describe for us in the word a condition where we are naturally at distance from him. And he has to talk us through when we start the conversation, Lord, where are you? I'm right here. Where are you? Let's move closer together. Let me guide you and show you. And so we're responding to the Lord through our prayers, through consistent prayer, where we're saying, Lord, what's the solution? How do I get where you are? And so through that conversation, the Lord is continuously highlighting what he has done to get us where he is, what he has done to build this bridge to facilitate our fellowship because there's this known gap between us. And my prayer is my willingness to cross that bridge into fellowship to respond to where God is and what he's doing and what he has provided. Look at verses three and four. But sometimes we are slow to respond. For when I kept silent, that is about my sin, my, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. While the Lord is righteous, what this says about me, here's my response. I am prone to suffer in silence until I respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
I am prone to do this. It is my default setting to sit silently in my sin and to feel the weight of it, to groan and complain about the weight of conviction until I respond to the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 tells us something, though, about this godly grief or this Lord's hand weighing, rest, weighing heavily on us. It says, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So everybody feels some sense of pinch from sin. The unredeemed heart feels the pinch of consequences and circumstances, but the redeemed heart is feeling the grief of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit is a person who is grieved, and if he is living in me, when I am grieved by my sin, I am now becoming sympathetic. Right? We are in fellowship, so I am on the same page. I feel what the Holy Spirit feels concerning my sin. And then I am prepared to repent because I feel the same way about my sin that God feels about my sin. And this is what I want. I need to understand that, 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 that unless I am growing in my grief, this is part of my sanctification, unless I am growing in my grief uh, uh, over sin, and I can only do that when I see sin the way God does, when I'm growing in my grief, it, I understand what's happening in my relationship, not just in my circumstances. If you've ever gotten into an argument with your boss, it's completely different from getting in an argument with your spouse. You want to talk about godly grief versus worldly grief? Let me give you an example. When you get into an argument with your boss, I mean a really bad one, you storm out of the office, you pack up your things, and you put them in a little box, and you hope that you still have a job, and you drive home in traffic with some sense of regret over the potential outcome and circumstances. You lay awake at night wondering if you still have a place to go back to and earn. And you're thinking about an email you need to type. You're thinking about, is your, is your LinkedIn fresh? You're thinking about all of these consequences and circumstances. But when you get into an argument with your spouse, you don't just think about the consequences. You're thinking about the wrinkle on the relationship. You and I are the bride of Christ. When, I, when, when, when God and I have a lack of agreement, the grief that I feel is not just over the consequences of that outcome. It's like, but Lord, how do I get back in fellowship with you? I'm not just putting my things in a box and trying to run and hope that it blows over. What do I have to do to get back in fellowship with you? How have I mangled this relationship or our fellowship? How do I fix this? I hope that's what happens when you get in an argument with your spouse. But I'm prone to suffer in silence until I respond to the real conviction of the Holy Spirit. When you look at verse 5, it says, I acknowledge my sin to you. This is more response. Lord, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me of the iniquity of my sin. So I am prone to suffer in silence until I see the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but then that's, that's what I'm doing. But the Lord is actively cleansing me when I respond in agreement about my sin. The Lord is cleansing me in ways that I did not know I needed. Did you notice the vocabulary David used to describe sin? Some of you, when reading through your Bibles, may think that it's just a bunch of synonyms, and you could just all call it sin. But the Bible is very specific and particular in the way that it chooses certain words. I acknowledge my sin 
you have did not cover my iniquity, I will confess my transgressions. What is that? Sin is by definition the missing of the mark. We were aiming for something and our effort fell short. We do not have the strength in our own selves to obey and honor God. We need help. We fall short of the standard of righteousness. We miss the bullseye of what God is, of perfection that God's calling us here. That's sin. But then the Bible uses these other two words, transgression and iniquity. You wanna know what those are? Imagine if you will, you've told your neighbor repeatedly not to let their dog use the restroom on your lawn. And you went so far to not only communicate that standard, you put a little sign next to the mailbox that says, no pets allowed to do whatever you do here. Your neighbor notices your car is not in the driveway, walking their dog, passes by the house, says they ain't home anyway, lets their dog come over to your yard. They have transgressed the standard that you set up in that sign. You made a clear, visual, verbal declaration of your standard, and they transgressed that sign. But then there is iniquity that also happens. After their animal gets done transgressing into your property and that trespass on the area you told them not to go, in their heart they say, this lawn needs to be fertilized anyway. They justify the transgression. There's a certain amount of, and that's what iniquity is. It is a twisting of the standard of God to try to justify myself by changing the standard rather than God justifying me by bringing me out of my sin and making me more like his son. Sin misses the target. Transgression ignores the standard. Iniquity twists the law to justify oneself. Prayer is God's invite into confession or agreement of sin rather than depression merely over my circumstances. The Bible tells us that no one can come to the Father except the Son draws him. And the Bible goes further to even say that when you need to understand that no one speaking by the Holy Spirit ever says that Jesus is a curse and no one speaking under the true influence of the Holy Spirit can actually say that he's Lord. The ability to speak truthfully about myself, about my Savior, and about my sin is all brought on by the active transformative work of the Holy Spirit. And it takes the illumination of the Holy Spirit to open my eyes to the reality of my sin. Um, uh, Pastor, um, Pastor um, um, McCammick's uh, father, Randy McCammick, he and I used to have a, uh, a little thing that we cleverly chuckled about uh, before he went home to be with the Lord. And we used to talk about hot dogs and how we all technically know. You can read the back of the package and see the triglycerides or whatever, blah, 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 hot dogs are bad. It's just kind of nationally known that hot dogs are bad, right? But they taste so good. But there's another thing that happens when you get a chance to truly see hot dogs for what they are, and that is when you go to the factory where they're made. And, and the Holy Spirit wants to take each of us on a tour of the hot dog factory of our own sin and say, look at this. This is the real deal. This is what you've been doing the whole time. And the idea is not to just get us to be technically upset about our sin, but to organically transform us to get us to see it the same way God sees it. Here's what my sin looks like on the inside. Ooh, Lord, now I'm grieved by it. Now I can confess because I agree with you with what this is. But how do I get there? When I'm in God's word... He is constantly filling my faith and he is filling in the blanks where these carnal eyes cannot see because it, the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what the Lord has reserved for them that are called for, for those, those that love him, right? We can't see it without God giving us. So, so if, if, we desperately need the word of God to fuel and undergird a proper prayer life. 
without the word of God effectively shaping it, I don't see my sin properly. The Bible has this beautifully gross portrait. You might not like this. This isn't Netflix. This is right from the word of God. The person who goes back to their sin is like a dog who revisits his vomit. Have you ever seen that first passage? Look it up. Isn't that ugly? Isn't it sufficiently gross? That's what the Holy Ghost gave you to help you see what it looks like to go back into your own sin. I didn't even have to make that up in an illustration. It's worse than the hot dog factory. Have you ever seen an animal do that? And it's mind-boggling. It's natural because they do it all the time. What is it that could be so great about that? This is what the Holy Spirit is saying. Look at you. That's you. That's not just your pet. Can we get a response? Not to me. And the Lord is saying, can you get a response? Will you respond to me now that you now see your sin for fully what it is? I hope one of the things that you notice, if, if it appeared on the screen or you see it on your page, how interlaced into each one of these verses or these movements is a selah, which is a call to pause, to contemplate deeply what is being said there. Why? Because of the very next passage. Verse 6, therefore let he who is godly offer prayer to, your, to the Lord at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. For you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I am prone. I am prone. Here's my response. Lord, I confess that I am prone to rush into your presence and not reside in your presence. I want to, in a very amendatory way, just run in there, say what I need to say for a few minutes and get on with the business of my day. The Lord does not want us to rush into his presence. He wants us to reside, as is evidenced by verses 8 through 10. There's a shift in the conversation. It's as if the Lord begins to, to, to start talking in David's prayer. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed and by, by bit and brittle, nor, uh, or, or, or else it won't stay near you. I don't know if you see that picture. The Lord says, listen, I don't want to be on your back like some horse or mule that has to pull you by, circumstantially or use my great sovereign strength. I don't want to be a, 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 a rustler. I don't want to be your redeemer. I want to be your teacher and your guide and your counselor. Some years ago, Carrie and I were horseback riding. We were just dating. Uh, I mean, I told this story in times past, and you got to hear this, right? So we get on these horses, and we're, you know, we're riding and doing this thing. And the guy who um, brought out the horses wanted to demonstrate to my girlfriend, you know, you know, he's a bigger guy. So he puts me on this horse that not, it's not a carnival horse. It's not the saggy back, beaten horse that's two months from the glue factory and just ready for kids. You can put five kids on it. It'll never raise up and it'll never throw them off. No, this is a straight up rodeo barrel running horse. And one of his distinctives, it wasn't his size or strength. One of his distinctives was he did not respond to verbal commands. He only responded to the brit, to the brit, on the strength. He would just take off running. So me and the guy, we get on the horse and we're riding and then he wants to race. And I was like, I just want to ride with my girlfriend. I don't want to race you. So he hits the horse on the back so that we could get into a race and ha, the horse takes off. And I'm having to dodge and dip under branches and everything. And I'm like, this horse is not responding to verbal commands. He's got to be pulled. His head has got to be yanked to the side. The Lord says, I don't want to do you like that. 
I know you out here got your head down. I know you running hard. I know life, you, you got your nose open. I know you see, you're motivated. You got all of that strength and gusto. I do not want to have to yank your head. Will you come and reside with me? I don't want to be on your back. I want to be your teacher, your guide, and your counselor. And so the Lord knows that I'm prone to rush. And we need to confess that. Lord, I am a perpetually and idolatrously busy person. And my day will always crowd out time with the Lord if I don't seek to reside in his presence. Prayer is my opportunity to do something really special, but I want you to see this first. In John chapter 14, uh, the disciples are sitting around. Jesus has made a description of how he is going to be with the disciples but not be with the world. Judas, not the Iscariot, says, Lord, how is it you gonna be with us but not with the world? He says, if you will obey me and my father, if you will keep our commandments, if you will, if you will respond to the commands, we will come and make our abode with you. We will come and make our home with you. God desires to make his home, his abode, his residence. The Godhead wants to hang out with humanity. And he says, the, the red carpet is rolled out when you see me for who I am in the commandments and you respond in obedience. Finally, I want you to see something. Same author is David, different Psalm, the 23rd Psalm. If you could put it up on your screen, which it is on the screen, you pull it up wherever you want to pull it up. I want you to see something about the presence of the Lord. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse two, verse two, hang on this. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Pick up speed. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You're rotting yourself. They comfort me. Slow it down. Verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Two dinner dates. Same shepherd, same sheep. Two different sets of circumstances. The first sheep in verse 2 is lying down next to Smooth waters, green pastures. Same sheep later on in the same journey or different adventure, but different circumstances. He says, I am walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And the Lord says, don't run. I'm going to set up a picnic table. Let's eat. Let's fellowship. The Lord wants us to respond to his reign so we can see him and watch him bring everything else in our life that is screaming for attention under his rule. Same sheep, not two different sheep, same God. He didn't have to upgrade his plan, right? It didn't like he just ran out of minutes or megabytes. This is the same shepherd that wants to lead and guide our people through a variety of different terrain. And he says, I just want you to respond to me as a shepherd. But as you're responding to me, I need you to know the landscape will change, but the Lord will not. Will you respond to me? Will you confess how much you desperately need me in both places? And I can set up a dinner date in either conferences. I can have the high seasons of life where you're having the time of your life and we'll sit down and have a nice picnic in grassy lands. But there are other times when on the mountain peak, standing on one leg, I'll set up a table when there are bombs bursting in the background and you don't know how you're going to get through. I will be pouring wine and bringing out olive oil. And I want you to see that. And so prayer is my opportunity to bring myself under what I understand. Lord, these are truths about you. 
I want to bring myself under this so that as I'm under your reign, I can watch you rule. Now, one of the first and foremost prayers of every believer's life is when we prayed to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you recognize that? The Holy Spirit opened our eyes and allowed us to see God clearly, just a glimpse, righteous and holy, to see ourselves clearly, wretched and sinful. And then we responded. If you were a believer, you responded by saying, Lord, what do I do? How can I please you? How can I have relationship with you? And in that response, then God shows you the truth of, the, 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 of his son on the cross. And then you ask him, you request that he comes into your heart. And then he saves you because you got an agreement on who he is, agreement on who you are, agreement about your sin. And that request was beautifully answered. That is the first and foremost prayer that you ever prayed if you really are a believer in this room. And it is on the premise of even that, that the Lord invites us to talk to him all the time. The gospel does not go into the rearview mirror. It is very much in the foremost. Every single day, I'm acknowledging the difference between him and me and what I need in light of that. Lord, teach me how to respond out of the, out of the ethos and the pathos of the gospel. Help my, my, my whole life to be enveloped in reverencing you for who you are and in responding based on my understanding now of who I am and how desperately I need you. The Lord desires to answer not just that prayer. He desires to answer prayer, period. But will we come to him with a clear acknowledgement of who he is, who we are, and what our circumstances are? And this is what the Lord desires from us. And this is why we, what we desire for you as a, as a church, what we desire for our own selves. In this first and foremost response to the character and nature of God. And so remember what I opened with. That prayer is me standing under what I understand God to be. Not really sure where you are in your relationship with the Lord. Maybe for the first time after the millionth time of hearing the words of the gospel that Jesus Christ has come to die for us on the cross. Why? Because there is a debt that we could not pay for ourselves. This life of sin is not just a pinch of circumstances. There is a clear disconnect between us and God, and God is the only one who can build the bridge. I don't have any moral bricks that can pave that road back to him. He must build the bridge, and he did build the bridge through his son, Jesus Christ. God says, this is the wisdom of salvation. Christ is your wisdom. This is the way to get to me if you feel the conviction of your sin. Will you come across that bridge? Will you put your full weight on the person of Jesus Christ whose life has been laid down for you to create this connection and to, to, to redraw you into fellowship with me? Will you come across? You may not understand how the bridge was built, you may not have a degree in Bible. You may not understand what bricks are made of. You may not know all of the particulars and details about salvation and all the religious vocabulary, but do you trust that this bridge can bear your weight and that I built it for you? And so the gospel is us responding to God's revealed plan of Jesus Christ. If you don't know him today and you've been praying, those prayers have been falling back down in your lap because there is no relationship there. But God says, I don't want you to pray like that. I don't want your prayers to fall on deaf ears. Pray this first and foremost prayer. Allow me to come into your heart and restore this relationship. Allow me to have fellowship with you. And I'll help you where you don't know how to pray. 
I'll redeem you where you don't have relationship. Let's pray. Let's do exactly that. Father, in the name of Jesus, this morning we come, this afternoon, we hand our hearts over to you. And you know how you need to be revealed in each one of our lives. Some of us need you in the salvation of our sins. We need you in salvation, oh God. Some of us need you in further sanctification because we gave up on prayer because we didn't feel like we were getting answers. And some of us, oh God, have been praying, asking for answers, and you've answered over and over again but we don't like the response and we've not been moving forward to serve you well. Lord God, would you meet each and every one of us in our respective spaces of response to you? Some of us, oh God, have given up on your word. Would you re-enliven in us a fresh appetite to know that we need your word desperately, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth, and that our faith would be built up and we could pray with the appropriate discipleship of heart. Lord God, would you help us, find us in all of our places, and teach us how to respond well.